You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, this is On Principle. Now, usually at this point, I say challenges in Jewish education. I'm not sure exactly how we could fit this into uh, Jewish education of today, but it definitely reflects on Jewish education in the past. I'm here with Rabbi Dr. Zev Ellis, president of Gratz College, um, and uh, one of my favorite people to speak about anything to do with Jewish history, but specifically about American Jewish history. Uh, Dr. Rabbi, Rabbi Dr. Zev, you know that today I think is um, the beginning of the real football bowl season. And, you know, both of us, despite the age difference between us, have noted that People, you know, the gap between interest in college sports has, has widened. Uh, at one time, uh, the college teams were really the essential subject matter of almost all sports aficionados. You know, today it's almost like a, well, a subgroup that checks out the college players to decide who's going to make it into the NFL and it's but interest in the Rose Bowl, interest in uh, the games, and has really waned quite a bit. At one time, though, it was almost a mania college sports, and I know that um, you have uh, written a book that is uh, bound to hit the shelves, or I guess the internet, uh, in later this new year of 2022 a book that sort of deals with college sports and deals with a special uh, Jewish presence within it. Um, and I'm really excited to have you here to talk about this because uh, I know that uh, we're sort of like ahead of the game here, uh, g- getting you to talk a little bit about your deep dive that you took into this specific person. This, uh, and I'll let you talk about him, but someone who was, who was, who was a, a sort of a forgotten figure of in Jewish con- the contribution of Jews to to sports, and uh, it tells us a lot about those grand old institutions of uh, intellectual institutions of Harvard and Yale. So why don't you uh, let me give the mic over to you, and you can just tell us what it is that you've been working on. It should be out with the University of Illinois Press uh, in the fall. Um, and you're right; I did find a forgotten figure. Um, not clear to me why he's not up there with Hank Greenberg and Sandy Koufax. And maybe you're right to a certain extent that it's because the college game, remember college football was the first big money sport in America, bar none. Talking about the 1910s and 1920s, it was Harvard Stadium is built in the early 20th century. It's the first modern stadium and Yale builds the Yale Bowl, Michigan, Alabama, uh, uh, Southern California, all of it, it's, it's this big boom of construction and big ticket, big money uh, in American sports. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, you're, you're on, the, on the whole, you're right. In our more metropolitan areas, the NFL, the National Football League looms large, larger than anybody else. But, uh, you know, you, tra- you travel through Alabama, Louisiana, Nebraska, try to tell them that the college game has waned, uh, they might take some umbrage. Uh, but I, th- I think it's almost like a subset. Piece. What I found was this interesting figure named Arnold Harvey, the son of immigrants, who uh, works in tandem with 
a another fellow, another son of an immigrant, Bill Bingham. Bingham suggests that he uh, that his ancestors came aboard the Mayflower, but not so. He was in a a, uh, a an Irish Protestant mill hand in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Um, and add to that a uh, a first generation. Uh, Irish Catholic, Eddie Casey from Natick, Massachusetts. And what you have is the recipe of a really dramatic, even romantic story uh, about three people on the periphery uh, who aren't part of the so-called back bay elitist culture that would mostly populate Harvard at the beginning of the 20th century. And not only would they win the Rose Bowl in New Year's Day, 1920, a little bit over a hundred years ago, actually 101 years ago tomorrow. Uh, but Bingham and Arnie Harween uh, become the first athletic director, does Bingham, of Harvard. And Arnold Harween becomes the head football coach. Now, in those days, hard to imagine uh, for the modern day sports fan, but the three leading jobs in America in the 1910s, 1920s, number one was the president of the United States, number two was the president of Harvard, and number three was the football coach of the Harvard Crimson. Why is that important? And, and maybe to take a, to zoom out just a bit. Uh, Jews, I was just talking to a reporter from the USA Today yesterday. Why are Jews so taken by their presence in American sport? Right? By, by my count, there are at least two national Jewish halls of fame, which have Jewish athletes and otherwise, but the idea of a Hall of Fame, though it's founded by NYU uh, to celebrate uh, American heroes is really a sports term. Uh, but every major federation city has populated some sort of Jewish Hall of Fame. Otherwise, we have written books. There are um, coffee table books that people get for their bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, maybe, about Jews and sports. You don't see that with other communities, by and large, in America. And I think that has to do with Americanization. It's a term that scholars, and not so scholars, throw out very frequently to Americanize. It's a term popularized by Horace Kalin, the great uh, theorist of American pluralism, Jewish, in uh, the early 20th century. But if we take it at full depth, what does it mean to Americanize? Well, for Irish Catholics, it meant to create parallel structures. Don't attend Harvard, build Boston College, attend Boston College and beat the snot out of those guys across the river, uh, across the Charles, that is. Or attend Georgetown, attend Notre Dame, and in Villanova, and in those, ad hayom. Uh, many of these schools are heavily still populated by people from Catholic descent. Uh, Instead of, don't attend the public schools, attend parochial schools. When we talk about Jewish Americanization, we take, talk about something quite the opposite. Don't talk about parallel structures. Find your way into acceptance, into existing structures. You know, not the Orthodox, to a certain extent, different. But if you read the literature about the attempts, as we've talked about it here, you and I, about day schools, most American Jews thought it was heresy to establish day schools. How could you do that and abandon the public schools, these golden citadels of learning? Don't you know this is the best way to Americanize? 
they said to those founders, the founders of Jacob Jozo School, Bernard Revel at what would be called Tamidoko Academy, MTA today, uh, how dare you defy the regular trajectory of how to Americanize? And even though that is an acute case, American Jews by and large consider it making it by being accepted into American culture. Uh, think about, so think about music, think about sport. When it comes, so when it, think about Bob Dylan or uh, Leonard Cohen when it comes to music. Think about, to a certain extent, uh, even though certainly he has his foibles and serious uh, reservations about him, it's Shlomo Karabach, but people talk about his acceptance in the mainstream folk music. Um, sport. Sport is the most salient way that I know of for someone to make it into American life. Think about it. There's a starting point to the season, there's an end point to the season, and hopefully there's glory at the end of it. It's built in drama. And so for Hank Greenberg to challenge the Babe's home run record or for, uh, or, or for, for Sandy Koufax to win, what is it, four Cy Youngs, he was only, you know, his, his, his prime was only six or seven years. Um, there was a whole politic about why he didn't play in his first couple of years. I think Walter Alston um, used him to the point that he threw out his arm. Oh, at the end, for sure. Yeah, the, his arm was basically falling off. Yeah, the amount, the amount of pitches that he hit. You know, Yosef, I, I would just say that, it, it, you know, the difference, of course, from where I'm sitting, is that the Catholics uh, had such huge numbers and uh, eventually money behind them that they could start collecting and promoting their alternate tracks Whereas the Jews, yeah, although the, the Jews, the Jewish numbers were so small that the idea of creating some sort of Jewish university or Jewish place to work, they knew that wasn't going to work. We what? knew we knew that we would be the the small guy, but of course, this was a way, especially not only to get fame, but as you know, as as as, as, as great basketball players have shown us a way to get out of the inner city, a way to escape poverty. Um, before you know Arnold. Uh, um, Horowitz, I see. I think his name was originally. Well, let me let me, let me explain a little bit. Let me yeah, explain but, a little but, bit. But before him, we had the boxers of that same period, and the Jewish boxers was a way for these kids that were probably raised semi semi orthodox to sort of earn the prize to be able to to win money for their family uh, and fame as well. So I think we do have this movement of. Let's get out of the ghetto. Sure. You have and, and, and you have sports is a way to Benny do that. Liner, who becomes Benny Leonard uh, in boxing. You're absolutely. But let me tell you a little bit about how I found Arnold Harvey in the first place. Uh, there was an attempt by a reform rabbi named Louis Newman in the 1920s to establish something called Menorah University. He was sick and tired of the quotas placed on Jews for admission into uh, places of higher learning. Um, some scholars count as many as 40 universities had major quotas limiting Jewish enrollment, including Columbia, including Harvard. Um, unofficially, Yale and Princeton uh, was most forgiving uh, when it came to admission to Jews uh, of the big three. Um, and I found it because Louis Newman had um, ranted and raved about the need to bring Jewish scholars from Europe. It was no longer safe for them. This already this predates Hitler, Yamach Shemo, of course. Um, and in the mid-1920s, he expects to receive major support to found a menorah university, he hopes to do it a little bit in upstate New York. And he is shouted down by the same people who supported Yeshiva College, by the way, 
like Louis Martin, the great jurist Louis Marshall, um, because that was meant just for Orthodox Jews who were much more uh, um, an enclave, clo uh, cloistered into their own uh, inhibitions and sensibilities. Uh, Minoa University for all Jews was anathema to the way that Jews Americanized. And Newman uses this tale of the great fullback Arnold Harwitz had to change his name to Harween in order to avoid A. Lawrence Lowell, he was the president of Harvard, to, to somehow uh, get past Lowell's quotas. Now, the truth of the matter is, Harween's father in his, uh, in his the manifest when he came to America in the 1890s already used the name Harween. We have no idea what there are a couple of these fables that come out. Um, Harween didn't do that. In fact, he comes to Harvard in 1916 before the quotas were installed in 1922. The fiction, which I don't know if it was created by Newman or he just fanned the flames, um, represented exactly what you're talking about. Uh, a thought, even though it's much smaller in number, the attempt to found their own universe, do it Catholic style, which was shouted down until. Brandeis, of course, in 1948, um, because that's not the way the Jews behave in America, numbers or otherwise. So let me tell you a little bit about Arnie Harween. Arnie Harween, his parents, Isidore and Rose, come to America, and America becomes their faith. They hang their citizen papers, where they denounce allegiance to the Tsar in their home, wherever they could. Uh, they belong to societies to Americanize, and so it made good sense that they would send their children, Ralph and Arnie, to the most progressive and American of public schools, one which was inspired by the great educational philosopher John Dewey, Francis Parker, on the north side of Chicago. By then, Harween, who had learned the leather trade in Ukraine, this is Isidore Harween, had um, started out on his own and created uh, a Harween leather company. It was doing quite well for himself. Uh, his boys were taught to play the piano and the violin. They played Claudius in productions of Hamlet uh, at Francis Parker. Uh, and they also played sport. Francis Parker was not known, it was very progressive. So they didn't like competition, but with Ralph and Arnie on the basketball and football teams, all of a sudden they got into the competition and they started to trounce uh, everyone else. Ralph was quite good, and the head football coach was a Harvard alum, and he said, why don't you go out to Harvard? Uh, his parents thought, well, that's quite terrific, even though they didn't quite understand sport. The idea, the notion of their sons being admitted into Harvard was quite a big deal, and so Ralph goes on to Harvard. He makes the football team. He doesn't, uh, he's not, he plays guard because the backfield is quite busy with Eddie Mahan, who uh, Jim Thorpe considered to be the greatest football player of the early 20th century, and Eddie Casey, that Catholic boy I referred to in Natick, Massachusetts. They're not ready, though, for the emergence of Arnie Harwin. Uh, Arnie Harwin comes, he's a year younger than Ralph. He arrives at Harvard, too. His grades aren't nearly as good as Ralph's. Ralph becomes, uh, gets a PhD uh, in chemistry. Arnold, uh, he, he doesn't uh, rise that much academically. Um, he's a jock, um, and he's a very popular fellow. He's good-looking, uh, he's effervescent, and he beats the snot out of the competition. Uh, there is no football during the uh, war years. Uh, the, they called them the informals 
uh, Arnie uh, captains them. Uh, all told, Arnold Harvey never lost a football game at Harvard. Uh, he ties Princeton twice to his chagrin. Princeton didn't play so fair. Uh, he is the captain of his uh, team senior year in 1920. And the 1919 season, which, uh, co- which is completed on New Year's Day, uh, quite controversially, because Harvard, it was the minhug. It was a strong minhug, minhug Israel Torah, that uh, you don't, you finish your season with Yale always. Uh, they go on to play the Rose Bowl, principally because Lowell needs to fundraise and to reach out to Harvard alumni on the West Coast, where the Rose Bowl was played in Pasadena. Uh, it's quite important to him at that moment. They beat, uh, they beat Oregon. They were, in those days, they were called the Webfoots, not the Ducks. Maybe it's an inspired decision to change it to the Ducks. Uh, and they win 10 to 7 uh, on field goal kicks by the Harweens and um, great defense. Uh, and Harween is feted as a hero when he comes back. Uh, by now, here talk about, remember I mentioned about name changing and how it wasn't so. This, uh, this legend that he uh, was, really, was born Harwitz, he does change his name because after he graduates, the Harween brothers haven't had enough. Of football. What do you do? Well, in 1920, we see the establishment in the Midwest of the National uh, Professional Football Association, eventually uh, rebranded as the National Football League. Who plays in the National Football League? Not middle or upper class young men. They can't afford to do it. They, they're working. Um, they don't have the ability. We're talking, we're talking about pre-FDR. There's no uh, any kind of socialized health care. Uh, in the United States at the time. So who plays it are working class. And in Chicago, that meant the Irish Catholic and the Polish Catholic, for that matter. And so the two teams, the Staleys come, eventually change their names to the Chicago Bears. And we have the Chicago Cardinals, now the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, They are Chicago's two teams, although that's um, not in the main. In the main, it's usually the smaller cities. Duluth and... um... Duluth and the, Canton, uh, Ohio, and Green Bay Packers. Yeah, of course, and that's where Green Bay comes in. And, and Sam, so, you know, the the NFL or whatever the pre-NFL, these were, as you say, working class stiffs, and they were considered low and despicable. It was sort of like roller derby in people's minds. People said correct. the college college football that that's where you have grace you and realism. Those are real athletes. These that's guys, the, absolutely. You know, Bronco Nagurski, who I think did play in college, though, but he was like a symbol of of, of what this NFL was, which was, Absolutely. Well, no, which was basically get your brain beaten out because, because you, you didn't have money. time to practice and you didn't have time to practice. And because uh, you weren't paid all that much money, unless you were a superstar, you would make uh, Patty Driscoll, for example, would sometimes make two hundred dollars at the game. But most of them were paid a measly sum of 50 and, bucks. And they would. And if you got if you got laid out. If you got hurt, well, that was your work week. So the risk was great. So I wonder, I, I, I wonder you know, these guys, Harwitzes, the Harwins, who were Yale grad, Harvard grads, didn't they have the educational fortitude to be able to get jobs like in chemistry they or loved, something else? They loved football. They had a job with their father. In fact, they helped. I'll tell you the story in a bit. Um, but uh, but they love football. They love sport. They couldn't get enough of it. So they arrive at the offices of the Chicago Cardinals and Patty Driscoll, who is both the coach 
uh, and the top player on the team recognizes them immediately and says, oh boy, you're going to play for us. The Harween brothers, they say, yes, we don't want a penny, but we also don't want to go by Harween. We go by McMahon. And so <laughs> A. McMahon, B. McMahon, their friends, C and D. McMahon, suit up for the Chicago Cardinals, a nom de plume, uh, signaling Irish Catholic. I don't think they meant to offend, but they needed to cloak themselves because both Harvard alum did not play professional football. That's CD institution in the 1920s. And also their mother was terribly upset at the proposition that her sons would compromise the integrity of of their American ambition by playing professional sports. Zev, it sounds like it's sort of, you know, the the fact that they were going so much against the grain sounds like there was this exaggerated, uh, I guess, romantic sense of what an athlete was that we saw in the Olympics as well, that it's all not about being a professional. It's only about taking these golden years in school and achieving along with educational achievements you also have these physical achievements and then you uh you pack it up there was almost like an idea was that like there's a purity to college to the college game where you take you take a kid at his youngest and strongest he does great things and then he moves on and then changes the world in in intellectual ways and there was was also creativity involved or with with football it was very much and always has been a game in evolution but there's something very fun about the transformation of running up the gut football to the passing game. And Arnie learns that in the Midwestern style professional football. And and I think that's part of it. The exuberance of being a part of something new. In other words, the college game did not yet have the type of advancements like the forward pass. It wasn't used as much. Basically everything, everything was basically run, right? And the ends, it was all about running and moving. It was more like rugby than we would say what we look at football today. The the forward pass is not authorized, not permitted until 1905. And an incomplete pass then was penalized with a 15-yard penalty. So uh, there was much at stake. You only threw the ball in, in desperation mode in the fourth quarter, even a couple of decades later. What I'm getting at here, though, is that by 1926, Arnold Harween is the most celebrated Harvard athlete, maybe next to Eddie Mahano, I mentioned. And Harvard is down in the dumps. After the departure of Harweens in the 1920s, Bob Fisher, now the coach, um, he's really down, has some down years. Even when they have a winning record, they still lose to Yale, which you might as well call a losing season in the eyes of the Harvard boosters. And Bill Bingham is uh, selected the athletic director in 1926 in his first appointment. Three months, he's appointed in March, and his first hire is Arnold Harvey. Among, um, and there, I collected terrible anti-Semitism, a member of the Hebrew race, uh, coaching our Harvard boys, heaven forbid, a professional athlete, someone without scruples, coaching our Harvard boys, heaven forbid, somebody who's a Midwesterner, a son of an immigrant, somebody studied at Francis Parker. He's a Harvard alumnus, but he becomes reduced to all of these facts, which highlights for me both the, um, on the one hand, the uh, um, I would say the opportunities for Americanization on one end, but also the thicket of racism and anti-Semitism on the other. But And Harween is selected the head football coach. He struggles his first couple of years. 
but by his last three years, he has vanquished Yale and he's had a winning season. Um, truth be told, uh, by then the Alabamas and the USC's were starting to emerge, Pitt and others um, with athletic scholarships. And it was already, the, the shine was off the star for the big three, but uh, it was in some ways, Arnold Harween um, using the very best and final years of Harvard football, uh, when he retires in 1930, Bill Bingham uh, has this major uh, banquet to celebrate Arnie's accomplishments. He has proved the, det the, the detractors wrong, but most of all, says Bingham, he taught us to love football again. There's something about the game, about the democracy of opportunity that Arnold Harwin teaches Harvard to uh, respect each other, to uh, maybe come a rung or two down from their New England elitism, uh, but most of all, to seek wisdom and guidance from anyone, whether they're at the center or if they're on the periphery, on the sidelines, patrolling back and forth. It's, but did it change the... Uh, uh, was, there a, was there a sense that not only did he show that football isn't you know, how great football was, well, did it change, Harvard, did it change the had... atmosphere in Harvard, the elitist atmosphere at all? There was, there was no, um, there was no sin. There was no violation of integrating uh, the teams with white and black people. In fact, uh, Harvard was one of the first to have um, African-Americans in their teams. They were very famous African-American um, Pollard on uh, Dartmouth uh, at around the time. Um, I would say that Harween betokened a sea change at Harvard to a certain extent. By 1933, James Conant had replaced Lawrence Lowell uh, as president of Harvard. Um, he was not somebody born in the back bay with a silver spoon in his mouth, so to speak. And so um, Harvard, this really um, represents a broader, call it tentative transformation of New England culture and democracy. Um, does Harvard change who it's uh, recruiting? Well, Harvard never really competes the same way that it did. It never competes in a Rose Bowl ever again. Um, so in some ways it's the last hurrah, but what Harween Bingham and the running back, his wingman in the backfield during his playing days, Eddie Casey, um, that last hurrah, um, spills over, I believe, into many other aspects. That really uh, takes us back to how we started, which is how sports has a way of anticipating change and the elegance of in the, the drama of sport in an arena in a crucible has a way of teaching us about much other things that are maybe even more that are certainly more important in our lives. It, it sounds that you know, even though now I guess it's a uh... Uh, love of this subject really uh, combined a lot of your own interests. Let, let's end with this. I mean, we know that you like sports and we know that you love American history and history in general. So this sort of was like almost like a, a dream topic for you, right? You were able to sort of like bring together a, many of your, uh, of your uh, passions and you were able really to, uh, I, I'm sure for, even from this conversation that we've had, to synthesize in a way. I mean, would you say this was, I mean, people are going to hear Zev Elif's book about uh, 
uh, dyed in crimson, they might be surprised considering what other works you've done. But this is actually very much writing what you know, isn't it? Um, well, I thought I knew, but boy, oh boy, <laughs> I have to acquire many bookshelves of the history of sport and actually have to, I had to retrain myself how to write in many ways. Uh, it's a style that I had never really experimented with before. Well, um, and a and in a literature that I didn't really know, but you're absolutely right, is the opportunity to use sport as a unique lens to understand other areas that I'm interested in, which is um, the limits of acceptance of Jews in the United States of American culture. Um, this provided a really uh, useful uh, entry point into understanding a lot of things. When I was growing up, I noted that it was only in sports writing that writers were allowed to sort of almost mimic the glorious, you know, florid prose of the 19th century. It was almost like, yeah, you know, Robert Lipstein and others. I remember reading his books when I was growing up. It was, it was, it's almost like even if Jimmy Breslin and others who wrote these, these, these sports sagas, we we allow ourselves hyperbole to the extreme in sports and sometimes very beautiful metaphor when when you talk about uh, a boxing match or a, a vanquishing and whereas I, I've discovered that the general reportage was very bland, you know, eventually uh, it became almost like the, just like Jack Webb, give me the facts, ma'am. And sports. Because, because when you think about who are the heroes of the 20th century for a moment, sure, John Glenn, sure, um, Albert Einstein for a certain person, but come on, it's Muhammad Ali and Michael Jordan, right? <laughs> these are, these are America's heroes for better or for worse. And so we allow ourselves to do that because we need to celebrate them. And by celebrating them, we celebrate ourselves. Or at least a vision of ourselves or a sense yeah. of what we could be. What, what what's, we the, what's the Gatorade the song? Be like Mike. <laughs> what does Charles Barkley say? You can't be like Mike. Trust me, I've tried. But nevertheless, we try to do that. And, and, and it's sort of a deification as well, but allows us to sort of uh, imagine our the best of ourselves being able to deification. What is what what the Sports Illustrated for kids write in 1995 when Jordan unretires? The, the the headline says the second coming. <laughs> look, all you've got to do is go to the United Center and you look at the uh, look at the Andantre. <laughs> look at the look at them. I guess, and that's exactly why Jews and everybody else care so gosh darn much about sport. And about who who makes it? Yeah, we still we still are. Bad when Josh Rosen gets cut from the Cardinals and can't make the team. Well, and the, so, and the 49ers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we'll see. Zev, thanks a lot for taking us back and maybe into the future as well as we, um, you know, as, as, as we sort That's of. Marty McFly. That's a different story. All right. Yes. Very good. Take care, Zev. Be well. Have okay. a great day. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.